Well, greetings to you from Community Bible Church in Spokane, Washington, where the uh, snow is falling readily even now. I called that home for years, and uh, as Don said, I get to call this home too. I'm thankful for that. Well, indeed, greetings to you from the Jones family as well, Angela and the kids, Ty, Quinn, Finney, and Ruby. They send their love. We would have loved to have been here uh, together, a little road trip. Maybe we'll try that next year, Lord willing. But I do thank uh, Eric, Chris, Rod, and Don for the opportunity to come and bless you this morning. Uh, having shared time at the Shepherds Conference together, it's a, it's a real treasure for me to come spend time with you here. So, brothers, uh, this is a joy. It's a joy, a real treasure to be here with you this morning. Brothers and sisters of Berean Bible Church, would you please turn your Bibles to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. And if I go over today, it's just the expression of my love for you. <laughs> and if I do go over today in, in timing, I pray that uh, I could lean onto your grace today because this message is timed out for about 60 minutes, and I believe that you need to hear all of it. So I speak fast, and I might up the ante today, but we'll get through this together because I believe there's a message here in Psalm 3 that you need to hear so that you can weather the storms and trials of life by knowing who your blessed Savior is and the expectations that he has for you. Well, this morning, I'd like to introduce to you the most prominent preacher from the late 4th century, a man named John Chrysostom, a man blessed by God to the extent that Chrysostom actually means the man with the golden mouth. Now, he preached in Antioch for 12 years and in Constantinople uh, as well, at the Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom, for another six years. Only 18 years of a preaching career, and yet this man was deeply loved and appreciated for preaching faithfully verse by verse through the Bible and being, according to Historian Nick Needham, astonishingly, astonishingly direct and outspoken in denouncing sin among believers, especially the sin of compromising with worldly standards of behavior. He also made hard-hitting criticisms of the way that rich Christians used or abused their wealth. The mass of, a, of ordinary people in the imperial capital became passionately attached to John Chrysostom, says Nick Needham. His preaching was straightforward. It was direct. It was clear. It was helpful pretty much what you receive every week here at Berean Bible Church. Regarding sin and repentance, he said, be ashamed when you sin. Do not be ashamed when you repent. These are two things, sin and repentance. Sin is a wound. Repentance is a medicine. Just as there are for the body wounds and medicines, so for the soul are sins and repentance. However, sin has the shame and repentance possesses the courage. Chris Austin said regarding abortion, to destroy the fetus is something worse than murder. The one who has done this does not take away life that has already been born, but prevents it from being born. Regarding salvation, he said, even if we have thousands of acts of great virtue to our credit, our confidence must be based on God's mercy and his love for men. Even if we stand at the very summit of virtue, it is by mercy alone that we shall be saved. And from that comment, you can understand that John Chrysostom understood salvation just like you and I understand salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And this man preached that message. Our sovereign Lord, our blessed Savior, he knew this guy. And he lived it in the face of opposition from within the church at Constantinople. John Chrysostom's direct, plain, forceful, and unapologetic sermons delighted the hearts of many believers, while at the same time, 
a cloud of enemies began to gather around and against him. Among his enemies, oddly enough, were Arcadius and Eudoxia, the emperor and empress of the Eastern Roman Empire. In addition, there were clergy and monks who despised Bishop Chrysostom's internal reforms, which raised the bar for life and ministry in the church. Further still, there was the Bishop of Alexandria, Theophilus, who became jealous of John's success as Constantinople's fame in the east was rising while Alexandria was fading. John's faithful and forceful preaching increased his enemies. And in 403, Theophilus himself, the bishop of Alexandria, traveled to Constantinople by land to tell all that he could that he was going to depose John Chrysostom. And when he arrived at Constantinople, Eudoxia and Arcadius supplied residence for him in their royal palace. And for three weeks, Theophilus vigorously lobbied anyone who had a grievance against John Chrysostom to come and talk with him. Mind you, 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Theophilus was happy to receive unsubstantiated, one-witness allegations against John Chrysostom. And by September of 403, Theophilus convened a council of bishops where all of the massive accusations against John Chrysostom could be discussed, or, as we might say, gossiped over. Nick Needham says some of those were patently absurd to anyone who knew John Chrysostom, such as, he loved money, he was a glutton, he had sexual misconduct with women. Even John was found punching his enemies in the face during Holy Communion. (laughs) Several times these wicked bishops and Theophilus asked John to appear before them. But he refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of these evil men. And so they had no choice but to find John Chrysostom guilty, depose him from office as bishop on their terms, and inform all of Constantinople of their decision to remove their pastor from their church. How did Emperor Arcadius and Empress Eudoxia respond to the council's decision? They immediately confirmed the verdict and ordered soldiers to arrest John Chrysostom. The soldiers went to the church, but the church had surrounded the Hagia Sophia, the church body, that is, the church of holy wisdom, and they would not allow, the church members wouldn't, the soldiers' access to John by day or by night. Nick Needham says, Chrysostom, however, decided that he could not endanger the lives of his people or the tranquility of the city by resisting the emperor, so a few days later he secretly slipped out of the church and surrendered to the authorities who put him on a ship and sailed him off into the Black Sea. In whom, brothers and sisters, did John Chrysostom place his trust for protection and salvation? In whom? In the hands of men or in the hands of God? John Chrysostom only knew protection, blessing, and salvation in the hands of God. Brothers and sisters, the question for you this morning would go like this. When your enemies are on the prowl and increasing in number, when your adversaries despise all manner of evil against you, and when the wicked secure your arrest through rumors, gossip, and lies, who will save you? Where will your salvation come from? To whom can you turn for blessing and deliverance? You're in Psalm 3 where King David confidently answers all of these questions, writing from his own exile as a cloud of enemies led by his wicked son Absalom sought to take his life. David turns in this instance to Yahweh, the only blessed God and Savior. 
He entrusts himself, his people, his life, to the God of his salvation, Yahweh, whose name is listed six times in eight verses. David's psalm is a song to his blessed Savior amidst one of the most trying times in his life. And so let's read Psalm 3 together now, a psalm of David. Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people whom have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You will shatter the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Of the 150 psalms in the Psalter, King David wrote nearly half of them. Psalm 3 is the first psalm labeled a psalm of David. John MacArthur says in Psalm 3, David shares his theological secret of having assurance in the face of adversity. In its sweeping scope, says John MacArthur, that is, it becomes a pattern, Psalm 3 does, for praise, peace, and prayer amidst pressure. In fact, this is Pastor John's outline when he preaches the text, predicament, peace, and prayer. Roy Zuck outline is very similar. He presents David was surrounded, sustained, and saved. Warren Wearsby also presents the text as David's conflict, confidence, and celebration. Because as a preacher, you have to alliterate your three-point outline. You know this. Now, each of these outlines from David are fa- are for, for this text in Psalm 3 are great. I see no problem with any one of them. However, I do see maybe a little bit a different take on this. I see David here as someone, as a man who is fixed and focused on Yahweh, his blessed Savior. I see David as concerned with talking to his Savior. He is compelled like a son seeking to honor his father who has expectations of his behavior. And this is what I'd like to focus our time on this morning. What are these expectations of behavior that David's focused on? David knows what God expects of him. As God's elect, adopted, redeemed, saved child, David knows. Psalm 3 comes at a terribly troubling time in David's life. And what we learn from David, a man after God's own heart, is how to please our blessed Savior when we face the most challenging circumstances in our own lives. There is a pattern, brothers and sisters, of behavior in the text. A pattern of behavior the Lord expects for saints who are struggling through trials in life. I don't need to have hands raised. I can imagine a few of y'all are in trials in your life now. If not now, this week. What pattern of behavior will you subscribe yourself to? Our joy this morning needs to be in extracting from Psalm 3 the pattern of behavior that God expects for His elect children when faced with anxious moments and even extreme misery in our lives. That's what's in this text. And I want to go into this text and extract that out with you. 
This is the direction for our morning. What does God expect for his elect children during life's greatest difficulties? Because whether you are at life's greatest difficulty today or you were there last week, chances are you will be there next week or in the year to come. And you, at that time, need to know David's display of the expectations of behavior that God has for him in Psalm 3. You need to know what God expects of you, just like David did. In Psalm 3, David performs three desires of our blessed Savior, which always comfort the hearts of his elect. Here in Psalm 3, David delivers three expectations of our blessed Savior, which prove the strength of the Savior's salvation. And since that's a thesis statement, I'm going to say it again for you, so you might be able to scratch part of that down. Here in Psalm 3, David delivers three expectations of our blessed Savior, which prove the strength of the Savior's salvation. Now, what three expectations of our blessed Savior both comfort our hearts and prove the strength of our Savior's salvation? Well, here they are in the text. Our blessed Savior expects his elect, adopted, redeemed children to, number one, cry out to him in verses 1 and 2. To confess confidence in him, verses 3 to 6. And to call out for him, in verses 7 and 8. Cry out to him, number one in your notes. Confess confidence in him, number two in your notes. Call out for him, number three in your notes. This will serve as our outline for this morning. We will be blessed this morning when we see our brother, King David, met all of our blessed Savior's expectations of his behavior. As his enemies were increasing in number and power, David's cry, confession, and call to Yahweh, captured in Psalm 3, perfectly match the expectations of our blessed Savior. It's little wonder that David's words here in Psalm 3 are honored by all believers as Scripture, even the very words of God. How must Psalm 3 then impact the rest of your life? Why should this message matter to you? Again, brothers and sisters... You can just see it in the day and age in which we live. What these kids have to deal with at story hour at the library. Dark trials are coming our way. Enemies will rise up and increase against you and against me. Even from among our own families. Even from among those in our church family. And when they do, I hope you never forget That God, through David, communicates his expectations for your behavior during those trials very clearly in Psalm 3. To honor God, your response must match David's response. Will you cry out to our blessed Savior? Will you confess your confidence in him? Will you call out to him for salvation, even blessing his chosen people? Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12 We'll look at verse 9. Before we turn our attention to David's delivery of these three expectations of our blessed Savior, we need to understand the context of Psalm 3. Psalm 3 opens with these words, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. In order to appreciate the strength of David's salvation and obedience to Yahweh, the blessed Savior, we need to understand David's exile from Jerusalem during the evil insurrection of Absalom, his son. You'll never fully understand Absalom's evil without going back to King David's adultery and specifically looking at God's punishment reserved for David for his many transgressions. The Lord sends his discipline for King David through Nathan the prophet, who told 
who was told to tell David in 2 Samuel 12, 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household, and I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. If you're familiar with this story, it's one of the most disgusting stories in the Bible, and it literally happened. Absalom did this horrible evil, taking his dad's wives in 2 Samuel 16, 22. How did this come to be? This story, it's a story of two brothers and two mothers. The two brothers are Amnon and Absalom. Amnon was David's first son by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, in 2 Samuel 3, 2. Absalom was David's third son, born of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, in 2 Samuel 3.3. 3. Makkah later gives birth to a daughter, Tamar, Absalom's little sister. Amnon, David's oldest son, he failed in sexual self-control along the lines of his father, David. He started lusting over his beautiful half-sister, Tamar, the full-blood sister of Absalom, in 2 Samuel 13.1. And then Amnon devised a plan to be alone with Tamar. And Scripture records that Amnon raped Absalom's sister Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, 14. How did Absalom, son number three, brother to Tamar, respond to the rape of his sister? 2 Samuel 13, 22 tells us. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. The extent of Absalom's hatred was known by Absalom's cousin, Jonadab, whose testimony becomes very important to King David two years after Tamar was raped. You see, what happens is, two years later, Absalom requests the presence of all of his brothers to a big party that he's going to put on for all of them, which turns out to just be a party of smokescreen for a murder plot. When Absalom's party ends very abruptly, King David receives an urgent message telling him, Absalom has killed all the king's sons. In 2 Samuel 13, 32, we get the report of that cousin, Jonadab, who knew what was going on on the inside, who reports to King David, do not let my Lord suppose they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Absalom spent two years planning and plotting the murder of his half-brother Amnon for the rape of Tamar. And now a murderer, this Amnon, this third son of David, fled Jerusalem, spending three years now with Grandpa Talmai, king of Geshur, in 2 Samuel 13. After three years, Absalom was allowed back into Jerusalem, but not allowed to see his father, King David. Not for two more years. For five years, this man had spent away from, his, away from the presence of King David. You can imagine the amount of hatred 
and anger that was boiling inside of him toward his father, King David. Over that time, the bitterness and anger toward David, it consumed Absalom's heart. He started in that time back in Jerusalem a counseling and judgment ministry at the city gate and began wickedly influencing the people toward him and against his father. 2 Samuel 15, 6 says, In this manner Absalom dealt with all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, and so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. You see, sadly, good men believed the lies of the lying liar Absalom. More than stealing hearts of those in Jerusalem, Absalom sought to steal the throne of King David, his father himself. He asked David to for the opportunity to leave Jerusalem just for a minute so that he might go down to Hebron to the south, as he said, to pay a vow to the Lord in Hebron. Again, this guy was full of lies and smokescreen. This trip to Hebron was cover for his wicked plot against David, which you read in 2 Samuel 15.10. You see it there in the text, 2 Samuel 15.10, which records, But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently, and they didn't know anything. But Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo, while he was offering for sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David and said, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise. Let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to go, ready to do whatever the Lord, the king chooses. And so the king went out, and all of his household with him. But the king left those ten concubines to keep the house. Warren Wearsby says, There's something in the heart of mankind that enjoys feeding on lies. Absalom was handsome, smooth-spoken, and a gifted liar who knew how to please the people and steal their hearts. Wearsby asks, why has God permitted this dangerous and disgraceful uprising? Well, as we read earlier in 2 Samuel 12, 11, we know the answer. This is God's punishment to David for his adultery and murder of Uriah. And moreover, this is God's turn to test David and to test the blessed salvation that God had placed into the heart of his servant, King David. Will David now act like Absalom and lean on his own understanding? Or will David meet God's righteous expectation for a man blessed blessed with both eternal salvation and abiding faith in God while he lives? Let's find out. Turn back to Psalm 3, Psalm 3, where we'll find the answer and the opportunity to rejoice with the Lord in the example of King David's unrelenting faith in Yahweh during this wicked trial in his life by looking at point number one in your notes, the first of three expectations of our blessed Savior is point number one in your notes, Cry out to him. What does David do? Point number one in your notes. Cry out to him. Your job when you face trials is point number one in your notes. Cry out to him. When troubles come, when trials come, when liars are lying and manipulators are manipulating and evil plots and schemes are planned against you, 
you must cry out to your Savior. Where do we see David cry out to his blessed Savior in Psalm 3? We see it there in the words of King David who said in verse 1, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. Roy Zuck says this arrogant remark was designed to say that God had abandoned King David. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, does the text indicate anywhere that the Lord abandoned King David? Certainly David didn't think so. Psalm 3 is a direct address to the God of the universe. He's talking to the creator of all things. He's talking to the owner and operator of heaven, and certainly the owner and operator of his salvation. David speaks to God as if speaking to his own father. Dad, my enemies are all around me. They are increasing in number and anger against me, and they are in total rebellion to you. They are blatantly lying about your desire for my salvation and my ultimate preservation as the king of Israel. These verses are a son-to-father status report, like the status report I got the other day, that six new inches of snow fell in Spokane. Are you kidding me? Like, like a status report of a teenage child checking in with dad at 9 p.m. Only this is often or could be a call that you don't want to hear. You'd feel helpless to defend your child if they called you and said to you that they were being chased away from the local movie theater by an increasing army of Antifa thugs. But the Lord, our blessed Savior, is not helpless to save, to deliver, to rescue in any situation. Do you know that about the Savior that I'm talking about? Do you know Him? Do you know how well He delivers, how much He protects? Deliverance here is the same word translated save. Are you paying attention? Psalm 3. Deliver is the same word as the word save in verse 7 and the word salvation in verse 8. Same word. Write that down. That's important. This Hebrew word is used three times here in Psalm 3. Do you know the Hebrew word that's being used here three times in the text? The word might sound extremely familiar to you. The word is Yeshua. Does that word sound familiar to you? The word Yeshua is transliterated into English in a name. Do you know the name in English into which the word Yeshua in the Hebrew is transliterated into English? It is the name Jesus, Joshua, Jesus. Now, what is this name Jesus? What does it mean? Jesus means Yahweh saves. It comes then as no surprise when Matthew reports in Matthew 1.20, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Yahweh saves. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the blessed Savior to whom all men must cry out. And David cries out to the Lord because he knows the salvation that has already been placed onto him into his heart by the Lord. Moreover, David is confident in Yahweh's salvation because his salvation is a personal salvation. The Lord cares about the wicked and evil that you face. He cares about the number and the intensity of the enemies 
that are gathering around you. He cares about what they say against you and about their evil mockery of God who gives them life, breath to speak, and in whose image they bear. And so the question for you today is, if you truly know the blessed Savior, do you call on Him? Do you call on Him like a father immediately when you face the trials that you run into in this life? Is your rapid reflex when you face danger and evil opposition to cry out to the Lord? If He saved your soul, friend, is He able to preserve your life? The answer to these questions must be yes. Don't believe for one second that you're crying out to God and your prayers aren't heard by God. It's, it's God's delight and His glory to hear from His children and to respond to us. We must see in David's cry to the Lord, obedience to the Lord's expectation. And we must follow the same pattern of relationship, knowledge, trust, and obedience to Yahweh. Look at what you see here in the text and recognize this is exactly how the elect chosen children of God respond in trial. And practice this yourself. This is the very reason that He saved us. We're His children, and He wants us to call out to Him. He expects us to cry out to Him like, like we know Him, like the relationship with Him is personal, like it matters eternally, like He actually is our Father in heaven whose character is perfect, gracious, loving, kind, which brings us to the second point in your notes today. The first point in our notes is that God expects all of His children to cry out to Him when they are in trouble, the trials, and danger. And point number two, the second of three expectations of our blessed Savior, point number two in your notes, this expectation is that we confess confidence in Him. Confess confidence in Him. Number two in your notes, verses three through six. John Chrysostom confessed confidence in Jesus Christ. When he submitted himself to the will of his wicked and sinful adversaries, Emperor Arcadius and Empress Eudoxia, who sent him off into exile. Nick Needham says, Emperor Arcadius was barely 20 years old when a, with, with a slender build and a stammering voice, and he was a rather ineffectual personality, easily dominated, Arcadius was, by others. And the one who dominated him, as you can imagine, was Empress Eudoxia. She was stunningly beautiful, intelligent, spirited, strong-willed, ambitious, and given to political intrigue. But as you can imagine by her actions... Eudoxia was, um, you might say, misfiring on a few theological cylinders. Notably, she was prone herself to an emotion-driven Christianity. You ever run into these people before? And so her emotion-driven Christianity was filled with all kinds of feelings and superstitions. Chrysostom had zero confidence in Eudoxia and Arcadius, although when he arrived in Constantinople, Arcadius and Eudoxia, they welcomed and supported his ministry. However, over time, you come to see who they really are. Eudoxia and her girlfriends in the church came to disdain the force and uncompromising presentation of the truth that John regularly delivered. They didn't like his many comments on how the wealthy should conduct themselves, and they, according to Nick Needham, especially reacted against John's forthright pulpit comments on Christian women who entered church looking more like tarted-up prostitutes than chaste handmaids of Christ. They took particular exception to that comment. Nick Needham says further, the cronies of the empress, having thus conceived a toxic enmity for Chrysostom, it was not long before they poisoned Eudoxia's mind against John. Just like David, John Chrysostom's adversaries were increasing. 
John knew Eudoxia had painful plans for his future, but kept on entrusting himself to his blessed Savior, and his blessed Savior did not disappoint on that ship sent off to the Black Sea. Nick Needham reports that within days of exiling John to the Black Sea on the ship, Arcadius and Eudoxia did a remarkable about-face, canceling Chrysostom's banishment and recalling him to Constantinople. This was a result of some disaster that had struck the capital. Now, some say the disaster was an earthquake, and others say that the disaster was that Eudoxia gave birth to a stillborn child. Either way, either way, our blessed Savior, friends, used Eudoxia's emotion-driven and superstitious Christianity to return Chrysostom to Constantinople. Who else could do that? He entered the city, Chrysostom did, triumphantly to a cheering crowd of thousands who filled the streets. Chrysostom lived the life that he taught when he said, remind one another that nothing in life is to be more feared except... Sorry, let let me give you this quote without messing it up. Chrysostom said, remind one another that nothing in life is to be feared except offending God. He confessed confidence in our blessed Savior and the salvation that had been given to him when he said, even faith, Paul says, is not from us. For if the Lord had not come, if he had not called us, how should we have been able to believe? So even the act of faith is not self-initiated. It is, as Paul says, the gift of God. Isn't this interesting? Here's John Chrysostom, early 5th century. We have our first Calvinist, thousand years before the Reformation. What would we continually find? What we continually find in biblical Christianity is that believers in Jesus confess confidence in Him. That's what we do: confidence in our Savior, Savior over salvation, Savior over all our challenges. Savior over our deficiencies, Savior over our weaknesses, Savior over our frailties, Savior over our mouth, Savior over our work, Savior over our families. He's Savior over everything. If He did salvation, friends, is He able to take care of the trials that we face in life yesterday, today, this week? We have great confidence that Jesus is this sovereign where do we see King David confess confidence in the sovereignty of the Lord in Psalm 3? We see the main body of David's prayer in Psalm is confession of confidence in the sovereignty of the Lord when he says in Psalm 3, verses 3 through 6, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with, a vo- with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me roundabout. Consider the mind that would make such an announcement. Consider the mind that has received this type of salvation that would say these things. Quickly, David's mind moves from his status in verses 1 and 2 to his confidence in verses 3 and 6. He reports his condition to the Lord first and then his certainty from the character of his adversaries in verses 1 and 2 then to the character of God in verses 3 to 6 from temporal earthbound thoughts to timeless eternal thoughts in just these short few verses. Roy Zuck says, In the face of such antagonism, David found comfort in God's character. He said that God was the true source of his protection. And in his song, David pivots here in verse 3. He pivots the whole discussion away 
from the conduct of the evil men that's being driven at him to the conduct of his infinite Savior. The actions of the evil men are an awful distraction to him to the glories of God who routinely makes His glories known in the lives of those on whom He has placed His divine love, favor, and salvation. In verse 3 to 6, David has created a list of confident confessions of the love of Yahweh that have poured out upon him. In Psalm 3, 3, David confesses personal, relational confidence in Yahweh. And in Psalm 3, verses 4 through 6, David confesses experiential, practical confidence in what Yahweh has done for him. Let's consider first David's relational confidence. In verse 3, David says, Yahweh, you are my shield, my glory, my head lifter. Having spent many years as a warrior in armed combat, David is totally comfortable speaking of the Lord as his shield. The soldier without a shield would feel naked and exposed to instant death on the battlefield. The soldier's shield was an instrument of well-being for the whole of his person. So too is the Lord. Relationally, Yahweh is instrumental, even essential to our very livelihood. The frailty of your form, even as you sit here right now, in all of its weakness, is held together perfectly by Yahweh. More than protection, David says that all glory, exaltation, praise, eternal rejoicing, and honor find their source in Yahweh. The converse of that is true as well. Without Yahweh, there is no honor, no rejoicing, and no exaltation. There is no shield. Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84? Psalm 84. As we are considering relational confidence, Derek Kidner says, My glory is an expression to ponder. It indicates the honor of serving such a master. Perhaps, too, the radiance that that master imparts to his slave. Most certainly, the Lord must impart honor and radiance to us daily. Paul says, as you know well, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that the Lord is imparting his glory to us as we are being transformed into the same image of the glory of the Lord from one degree of glory to another degree of glory day by day as we believe and trust and live out the faith that he placed into us. Roy Zuck says, the words lift up my head express restoration to dignity and position. David is saying there in Psalm 3, that his Savior personally, relationally, both past and present, has brought and continues to bring to him a place of dignity, honor, exaltation, and glory, and is fully able, his Savior is, to shield him from all of the evil of all of his adversaries. In this, David is confident. His salvation is the same as yours. His confidence must be the same as yours. Do you have this assurance? Do you have this certainty? You're in Psalm 84, verse 8, where the sons of Korah express the same relational confidence in our Savior. It's David's confidence. It's the sons of Korah's confidence. It must be your confidence. Listen to it. Verse 8 Psalm 84, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. 
For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Tuck that away into your pocket. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Oh, Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. This is the sound, friends, of relational confidence. In our text, King David is a blessed man because he has this same personal relational confidence in his blessed Savior. Turn back there to Psalm 3. Turn back to Psalm 3. Do you know our blessed Savior personally, relationally, confidently? Does your, do you confess his character with confidence when you face trials? Do you find that meditating confidently on the relational character of God ends your anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, shame, guilt, pain? You should try it sometime. Yeah, give it a try. Meditate on the character of God. Stop taking your antidepressants and start taking your thoughts captive. Make your thoughts conform to the reality of God's character, His power, His ability to do with you what He wants, as opposed to being swayed over and given over to medication. What does David add to confessions of relational confidence? We see in Psalm 3, 4, Psalm 3 verses 4, 5, and 6, David adds illustrations of practical confidence that he has in Yahweh. Verse 4, I cried. Guess what? He answered. Verse 5, I lay down. I slept. I awoke. Guess what? He sustains me. This is practical confidence. And what does this say about a good night's sleep? How many of you had a good night's sleep last night? You got ripped off an hour. God did that to you. (laughs) Do you value sleep? Is sleep a joy to you? It's so basic to life, and David credits Yahweh with good sleep. How instructive is that for all of us? Do you believe that if you had a good sleep last night, let me, let me just think about this. Like, how many of you had a good sleep? Those who did, what is the chance that your relationship with God is going well? That you ended your day with high thoughts and high praise to the God of your salvation? What, are the, what is the chance? How instructive is this for us? about sleep coming from God and coming from right understandings and right thinkings about His providence and sovereignty. It might cause a good sleep, wouldn't it? Sometimes the uh, youngest of the Jones kids, they come into my room looking for a good night's sleep (laughs) on their terms with a question. Dad, can we sleep in your room tonight? Brothers and sisters, That is not the formula for a good night's sleep. (laughs) The best sleep is given by Yahweh in the heart that has practical confidence in Him, not proximity to mom and dad. I so desperately want this to be the case that comes over my daughter's heart. You don't need proximity to mom and dad to have a good night's sleep. But if I go to your bed and I pray with you, and I pray big thoughts about God and leave those floating around in your little head, guess what's going to happen to you tonight? You might just sleep really well. D.A. Carson says, In the Old Testament, the ability to sleep untroubled is a sign of faith in the protective power of God. 
Solomon exhorts his son to treasure Yahweh's wisdom and knowledge, making clear the benefits in Proverbs 3, verses 23 and 24, by saying, Then you will walk in your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. We see this in the New Testament as well. In Mark chapter 4, verse 36, Jesus and the disciples, they get on a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. You know the story well. A big storm with strong winds blows the boat all around. Waves are crashing on the boat, and it's filling with water. And where was Jesus? Asleep in the stern. Acts 12, Herod is tormenting Jesus' church and mistreating Christians. He puts James to death by the sword and arrests Peter. And in Acts chapter 12, verse 6, it says this, On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, that is Peter, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, guards in front of him, in the door, were watching over the prison. There was Peter, having known of James' death by the sword, facing death himself, and yet the man was chained to soldiers and asleep. How does it happen? Do you see the pattern? In Psalm 3, David marvels that his blessed Savior would be concerned with and provide for him to have a restful night's sleep. And he praises God for it. Our Savior cares about his sleep. That's personal salvation is personal care. Roy Zuck says God had sustained him through the night in the midst of his enemies, and that protection was a token, a token of the complete deliverance that he expected. Your sleep, friends, is a token of what we are going to get in all of eternity with God forever. It's a token. Do you trust our blessed Savior with your sleep? Does he know your needs? Do you place practical confidence in Yahweh's ability to bring rest to your body? Don't pay lip service to the question when I ask it. Do you regularly confess confidence in Christ? Is that how you describe your salvation? Many people describe their salvation as, I opened the doors of my heart to Jesus and I accepted him in. No, no, no. My salvation wasn't like that. I was dead and Christ jumped into my deadness and breathed life. That's a different kind of salvation, folks. Look at Psalm 3.6, where David's confidence in his Savior seemed to be expressed in exaggeration. He says, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. Now, I know many of you all get very concerned if there's one person on Instagram trolling your posts with angry comments. And yet, this is not exaggeration here in the text. Consider how practical David's confidence is in light of 2 Samuel 17, verse 1, which says this, listen, Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone. Ahithophel was an incredible counselor. He was able even to gather 12,000 men on that night. The plan that he gave was genius. But the Lord planted Hushai, the archite in Jerusalem, to undermine Ahithophel's excellent military strategy. And when Hushai was consulted by Absalom about Ahithophel's plan, the Lord gave Hushai the courage to say in 2 Samuel 17.1, this time the advice of Ahithophel that he has given is not good. Friends, Hushai did not save. Yahweh saves. Yahweh planted Hushai there to say that. 
Instead of fear, David confessed great confidence, both relational confidence and practical confidence in Yahweh. His great confidence in the character of God matches the Lord's expectation of the elect. Confidence in the Lord goes further, compelling the Lord's elect to ask for aid, to request the rescue, even to demand the deliverance, which we see next in the text at the third of three expectations of our blessed Savior. Number three in your notes, the third of three expectations of our blessed Savior in verses 7 and 8 is this. Number three, call out for him. Number three, call out for him. Where do we see King David calls out for his blessed Savior? You see King David called out for Yahweh's salvation in Psalm 3-7, where he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people, Selah. Are you paying attention to this? Because this text is remarkable. David is commanding God to act. Who's the creature and who's the creator, right? This is awkward, isn't it? How can this be the case? When is this ever acceptable for the creature to make commands of the creator like this? It's okay for the creature that has received salvation by grace alone. For those who are repentant sinners who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for those who have a keen sense of the grace and truth that Yahweh has delivered onto their hearts and into their minds through his power and on his terms. John MacArthur says, this is a battle cry for God to engage the enemy and defend his soldiers. It's perfectly right, good, and just to ask God to do exactly what his character demands that he do. He will arise. He will save. Again, quite literally, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And so we see here in the text that God allowed men to know and discern his righteous eternal will. Time and time again, the New Testament writers expect the very same thing, that the will of God can be discerned by those who have received his grace and favor, that you can know it, that you can do it, that you can call out for that will of God to happen in front of you before you've ever seen it take place. Ephesians 5.17 is where Paul says very plainly, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. King David has known the will of the Lord for decades by this time he writes Psalm 3. Clearly, he is comfortable calling on Yahweh than to act like Yahweh. And so we see his bold request, even his demand of God. Arise, save me. Amen, brother. Call on him. Call on him like a father. Call on him like you know him. Like you know how to talk to your father. And that he'll answer that you have hope and confidence and certainty that he will answer. Like you know that he's talked to you and you know what righteousness is. So when you speak righteousness, you know he's going to do it before you ask. Brothers and sisters, I would hope that in your lifetime, you also will know the Lord so personally and you too will be bold in calling on Jesus for salvation, deliverance, rescue in your hour of need. When your thoughts in your head go dark, and your mind goes to a desperate place, and you, like I, experience thoughts that suggest that at some point in time you should take your life, that you reject those thoughts, that you take captive your thoughts and make those thoughts conform to the perfect righteousness of Christ, and that you recognize that your life was given to you as a gift of the Creator God. And He gave you breath today. He woke you up today early. He woke you up to get here on time and to deliver him the glory that he is deserving of. 
Even your salvation was a gift of God. Your life is a gift of God. Your breath is a gift of God. Your sleep is a gift of God. Your existence must go out of you. Your breath, your life, your actions, thoughts, and words and deeds go out of you as praise to the God that created you. Now, there's a translational issue here in the text that I want to address. And so I'm going to throw the yellow flag onto the lexical field of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the challenge in the tense, the challenge is the tense of the Hebrew verb in chapter 3, verse 7. Some of your translations say, you have smitten, you have shattered. Others say, you will strike, you will break. Still others say, you strike or you break. What tense of the verb should we understand here? Well, I think it's best to render this in the future tense, which my LSB, Legacy Standard Bible, and my NASB, they fail me at this point. I just don't see how Psalm 3-7, at Psalm 3-7, as a verse, it holds together. If on the one hand, David is asking in the now, save me, and immediately turns to the past tense and says, you have smitten, for you have shattered. It seems inconsistent. Is he saved from his enemies at this point, or is he not saved from his enemies? And so I believe that he is asking for salvation through the smiting and shattering of the teeth of his enemies. David is asking the Lord to smite and shatter the mouths of his enemies. And one of y'all just said, Oliver Jones, put your hand over your mouth. How can you tell me that David is actually praying for the Lord to physically cause injury to the face of another human being? That's absurd. That's way too harsh. But friends, that's exactly what's happening here. And it happens several times over in the the Bible as well. Theologians call this kind of prayer, asking for God to bring harm on the unrighteous, they call it an imprecatory prayer. You should ask, what's an imprecatory prayer? Okay, you did. Good. Let me answer that for you. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 18 while I do. Matthew 18. Imprecatory comes from the Latin word imprecatio, which means a spoken curse or an invoking of evil. Pastor and theologian Brad Clausen says an imprecatory prayer is a prayer that entreats God to curse or damn another person or entity in some spiritual or material manner. Several psalms request that the Lord bring harm, justice, and wrath to those who practice evil. And it should be noted that this is exactly what God does. He brings harm and justice and wrath to those who practice evil. This is righteousness. This is the righteousness of God. God does this regularly. I can imagine that for many of you, again, this seems harsh. What you need to ask yourself is this. What is best for the unrepentant? Ask that question. What is best for the unrepentant? Is it best for them to stay in their sin and go to hell or to lose an arm or to lose an eye or to lose a vacation or to lose a car or to lose a child and be brought to a place of humility while they live for the salvation of their soul eternally? What's better, brothers and sisters? And and instead of just thinking about what's better for them, think about this. What's better for the glory of God? What's best for His glory? What scenario works out best for Him? You may recall that Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, where you are now, He says this, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you that you enter life crippled and lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fires of hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, do you realize that some of us are so stubborn, we love our pride and our sin so much that we would never, ever, under any circumstances, pluck out our eye and choose to enter eternal life? 
I praise the God of my salvation. Because if he is going to save me and my eye needs to be plucked out of my face to make that happen, he'll do it. He'll make it happen. And he'll make sure that I end up with one eye less, but I go to heaven where my whole body is restored. He is that good. He will take the eye and send me to eternal life. Praise God for a salvation that is just that strong. Maybe you should ask Pastor Oliver, do you pray imprecatory prayers then yourself? You're making it sound like a good idea. Do you do that? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, I do. I've got members that are in unrepentant sin, and I would rather God take their limb than leave them in their unrepentant sin. And I would imagine that Pastor Eric and Pastor Chris, they pray on y'all as well, right? <laughs> Let's sort that out later. <laughs> I pray they would when you persist in your unrepentant sin. I told my congregation this as well, and I'll tell you just the same. Feel free to pray an imprecatory prayer on my head. In fact, I implore you as your brother in Christ right now. If I ever, my name's Oliver Jones. If I ever come to a place in my life where I am bound up with wickedness and unrepentant sin, I pray now that you would do me this favor as a brother. That you would pray an imprecatory prayer on my head. That you would pray that God take something from me that is causing me to continually sin. Take my hand. Take my eye. I implore you to pray the prayer for me that he would grasp my attention away from earthly treasures in sinfully tracking down that I'm after, that he would arrest me and stop me in my tracks and remind me to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness above all else at the expense of an eye, at the expense of my hand. Pray that prayer for me. You want to be a brother or sister to me? If I get into trouble in this life, which I'm capable of, I'm that sinful. If I do, pray that prayer for me. Warren Wiersbe says, David saw the rebellious army of a pack of, as a pack of animals that needed their teeth broken. Their evil deeds must be punished now. Only then will righteousness reign. And maybe, just maybe, through their pain will come humility that leads to salvation because God is that good. And how many of you are here today because the Lord did this to you? I don't need to see hands. I know it's the case. How many of you did he strike and smite to get your attention? Because you were just that sinful, weren't you? What we need to understand is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's exactly what David says as he concludes his psalm in Psalm 3. Turn back to Psalm 3 now. John Chrysostom had every reason to call out an imprecatory prayer to Yahweh to curse Arcadius and Eudoxia. He had every reason to call out for Yahweh for his salvation for himself, even after being returned from exile to Arcadius and Eudoxia, because the anger of these people and the hatred in their hearts had not found its full satisfaction against John Chrysostom. I can only imagine that Psalm 3 would have been a well-placed thought on John Chrysostom's mind and on his lips at this very moment in his ministry upon returning to Constantinople. Why should John Chrysostom have prayed Psalm 3, both the imprecation and the salvation? Let me give you the reason why. 
Because after he gets back into Constantinople from exile, immediately Eudoxia set up a silver statue for herself near the church of Holy Wisdom, the Hagia Sophia, late in 403. Wild games and festival atmosphere surrounded that statue and caused a great disturbance to the regular Sunday morning worship service. They were even worshiping Eudoxia on Sunday. Nick Needham reports John Chrysostom broke off from his prepared sermon to express his strong disapproval of the ungodly tumult and to condemn those who had organized the tumult. Quickly, word got to Eudoxia and fully reignited and further inflamed her rage against John Chrysostom. Before the end of March 404 AD, John was arrested by the emperor and empress a second time. He was sent away for a a three-year exile in Armenia, but that didn't satisfy the wrath of Arcadius and Eudoxia. Three years later, they decided to intensify his misery by sending him to the most remote and desolate outpost in the Eastern Empire, to the town of Piteus. John was made to march all the way there on foot, making him exposed to the scorching sun. And just three weeks into that long journey, John Chrysostom collapsed and died at age 58. This might make it seem that John Chrysostom was shattered and smitten by God himself. This ending might make you believe that God did not save John Chrysostom. However, we must not allow our ideas and faulty interpretations to control the narrative of John's life. What were John's last words? John's last words to illuminate the content and call and cry of his own heart are these. John's life reportedly ended with him saying, glory be to God for all things. John Chrysostom understood the blessing of salvation on same terms that King David does. What are those terms of salvation? You see the terms of salvation there in Psalm 3.8 when David says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. John MacArthur says this is a broad, sweeping, all-inclusive deliverance, whether in the temporal or eternal realm. And do you know this? That Yahweh is in charge of salvation, all of salvation. He's in charge of it. Earthbound salvation when we need rescue from the wickedness and the lies of liars and manipulators, and eternal bliss salvation when He sends His Holy Spirit into our sinful hearts, washing, cleansing, and redeeming our worthless lives for His glory. You know, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, friends, I don't care where you've come from or the depths of your sin or what you've done or what you haven't done in this life. It doesn't matter in the slightest how much wickedness and sin that you have tied yourself up to and been engaged in for the last umpteen years. If God wants to save you, He is going to save you. You can't stop it. Because this life is not about you. And for some of you, that's the first time anybody ever said that to you. And I'll say it again. This life is not about you. There is a God of the universe who is the maker of all things. And he applies salvation to those whom he chooses. This life is about the power of God in salvation because salvation belongs to the Lord. How strong and how able is our God to save sinners like us for his own glory? Oh, he's powerful to save. Is there any amount of sin that God can't save you out of? I mean, maybe somebody's in here and they're saying today, but Oliver, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how sinful I've been. And I, I, I'm going to go through a process of spiritual revival to try to wash and cleanse myself up and try to get right with God. Don't do that. He's a Savior. Listen and believe. 
In fact, do this. What you just said, repent for that and believe the gospel that he's a savior, that he's strong to save. That's the gospel. Our salvation has nothing to do with the degree of our sinfulness. It's everything to do with God's decision to save. Can you stop the salvation of God if he wants to place it on you? No one can stop the salvation of God. Does it stop heretics? Stephen Furtick, heretic, he says this, even Jesus can't override your unbelief. Do you believe that for a second? That's a manufactured lie from the pit of hell. Both King David and John Chrysostom taught Yahweh owns salvation because both men had been given eternal salvation by Yahweh as a free gift. We've seen today just how these men responded to the blessed salvation they received. What did we see? They both met all the expectations that Yahweh had for those who have received his salvation. David and John cried out to the Lord, confessed confidence in him, and called out to him. This is the pattern of behavior expected by those who are believers in Jesus Christ. God's elect, whom he saves, us who believe and repent, this is what we do. This is the pattern of our lives. If you've been saved by God, the call on your life this day is to model this same pattern. Cry out, confess confidence, call out. King David and John Chrysostom met one more expectation of their Savior's salvation as well. And I hope that you don't lose sight of this. You can add this as a bonus point in your notes. Three plus, you could call it. He had concern for his people. They both loved Yahweh's people, they did. They had concern for his people. David's thoughts move to Yahweh's bigger goal, creating a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When he says in verse 8, your blessing be upon your people, say law. I call this elect excellence. When you have concern for the saints. When our sorrows end in the blessing of other people who love God, not in our own riches and our own wealth, but the blessing of people for God. When our final thought is focused on the Lord's elect and growth and unity in the church, to turn from, I'm so weak, I'm so miserable, and to turn to, Lord, place your blessing on your people. From things are so bad for me, to Lord, do something awesome for Berean Bible Church. Arcadius and Eudoxia were not concerned with growth and unity in the church of Jesus. Their evil treatment of Pastor John, or Pastor John Chrysostom brought division into the church of Constantinople for 30 years until their son, Theodosius II, took the throne, repented publicly, begged the citizens to forgive the evil of his parents toward John Chrysostom, and then Theodosius II, their son, returned the dead, broken bones of John Chrysostom to Constantinople, gave him a proper burial, vindicating his message and ministry at the Hagia Sophia and the Church of Holy Wisdom. And Nick Needham says this, the homecoming of John Chrysostom's bones ended the division in the Church of the East. The Lord saved John Saved Goldmouth John Chrysostom one last time to bless his church with unity. You remember, John Chrysostom chose exile. As opposed to seeing his church be punished by these evil people, he chose exile for himself, entrusting himself to God. John suffered to try to keep unity for Jesus' church in Constantinople, and the Lord used John, even his dead bones, one last time for the very purpose that delighted the, the flesh and blood heart that was inside of those bones. Brothers and sisters, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord Jesus, 
your blessing be upon your people here at Berean Bible Church. We thank you so much for the salvation that you so clearly placed on those who gather in this congregation. And I thank you so much for Don, Rod, Eric, Chris, and the way that these men focus on the need for the pulpit to communicate truth to your people, that they know your salvation, that they may as well join together in unity and say this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen.